When my son was born, someone gave us a little Noah's Ark lamp to place in the nursery. It was a primitive wood-carved base with a, a blue boat and some red wood-carved animals perched upon the deck, and it sat upon his dresser until just a few years ago. But I'm not the only mom who loves the adorable art associated with Noah's Ark. As far as I can tell, Noah's Ark is the only Bible story that shows up on wallpaper that is used to decorate a child's nursery. Enter any children's library and you will find a stack of colorful picture books portraying some version of this well-known story. Usually, these storybooks, as well as the designer accessories, portray Noah's Ark as a Caribbean cruise. Everyone is smiling and happy and waiting for the dove to return with an olive branch in its mouth to give the all clear to embark from the 40-day pleasure cruise. Rarely do the children's books talk of the stench left by the manure of all those animals on the boat for 40 days, or the seasickness of Noah's wife, or the brokenheartedness of Noah's sons who just lost dear friends to a tragic drowning. Sometimes when we reread the classic faith stories of our childhood, again, as an adult, we discover that they are PG-13 rated, sometimes even R-rated, material for mature audiences only. So how shall we read the story today? I picture the ancient people of God three or four thousand years ago sitting around a campfire out underneath the stars telling this story for a particular reason. We know that there were stories of a great flood and a boat rescue that floated around in various cultures and religious traditions, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh. And we know that these flood stories vary both in detail, in conclusions, and in dramatic emphasis. So as the ancient people of God set out there under the stars around the campfire, why did they tell this story? What question were they seeking to answer? What longing did the story of Noah's Ark satisfy or evoke? If you look at the beginning of the story, before Noah takes out a tape measure and starts measuring the cubic links of the planks, you learn that God is ticked. The people were wicked and evil, and God was sorely disappointed. God grieves. God grieves this unfortunate turn of events. Why did I make these people anyway? What a mess life has become. The ancient people knew life's mess well. They had been enslaved by an evil empire. They had been captured by foreign invaders. They had known the trials of famine and persecution and plagues. So often in life, God's people had needed a reset a do-over, a new beginning. Carrie Egan wrote a book of stories called On Living. She tells about her work as a hospice chaplain, and she tells about a particular patient she was visiting named Reggie. Reggie was diagnosed with a severe case of COPD. He was terminal, gasping for breath. 
When she entered his room for the first time, he said, wheel me outside so we can smoke a cigarette together. And she said, well, I don't smoke, but I would love to sit outside with you. And he said, ah, oh, no, it's no fun to smoke alone. And so he reached into the little plastic drawer beside his bed and he pulled out some saltine crackers in the cellophane wrapper. And he had some of those little plastic strawberry jam containers with the foil cover. And the two of them feasted on those together in his room while they shared what felt almost like communion. He said, I'm just waiting for a lung transplant and then I'm gonna get out of here. Chaplain Carey knew that this was false. She listened patiently and carefully. What is your name again, he would say to the chaplain. He said this on every visit. And then he went back to his bitter complaining about how the doctors and the nurses and the social work folks would not take his application for a lung transplant seriously. Wouldn't it be great, he said, if I could just breathe and I could get out of here? Chaplain Carey said, yeah, it would, it would be great. And he said, if I could just get out of here, I'd get a little fishing boat and I'd get a dog. I'd, I'd take your kids fishing. Chaplain Carey encouraged him, if, if you could get a new lung, you could do all of that. Yes, he said, I want another chance to live. I want to start over again. I want to live a good life. And the day came that Reggie could no longer breathe. A different hospice chaplain was on duty. The chaplain came into the room and Reggie was startled. Where's the lady with the blue eyes? She had not been there for six months. She had been reassigned to a different hospital. But Reggie remembered her because she had allowed him to dream of starting over. Maybe the ancient folks in this story also dreamed of starting over, of living a good life this time. Instead of giving up on us when we showed the most evil side of ourselves, God somehow in the story finds a way for them to start over, to be saved. Some see those floodwaters as kind of a cleansing of humanity, giving them a new beginning. Do you remember just a few pages before in Genesis 1 when it is the beginning of all time and God hovers over the face of the deep, God sweeps God's spirit over the face of the waters and new life comes up out of the chaos of the water. And here again, God saves and brings new life out of the chaos. Others have suggested that the flood was a kind of baptism where people immersed their lives again into God's holy ways so that they could live life afresh. Still, this does not settle the minds of those who protest that many, in fact almost all, drowned. For me, the most astounding part of the story is not that there was this fantastic flood, or that Noah's life was spared, or that the animals were called to come on two by two so that creation would thrive again in the future. For me, the most shocking part of this story is that when Noah and his family and the animals come trouncing down the gangplank at the end of the flood and step their feet onto the marshy, wet ground, God speaks and says, 
never again. Never again will I destroy every living creature as I have done. God promises to be a different kind of God. This dramatic change of heart reminds me of a novel, a novel called News of the World by Paulette Giles. At the beginning of this little novel, a retired Civil War captain named Captain Kidd accepts the handsome sum of $50 in gold to transport a little girl named Johanna back safely to her family in San Antonio. Johanna had been captured by the Native American Kiowa tribe when she was just a little girl and she has spent most of her childhood living among the Native American people so much so that she no longer knows any English and calls herself only by her Kiowa name. Her parents perished in the war, but her aunt and uncle await her return in San Antonio. Captain Kidd knows a few Kiowa words and he tries to connect with her. He tries to prepare her for what is coming, how to eat with a fork so she can live in the world in which he will return her to. But all she longs for is to be back with her tribe. The two of them travel by covered wagon and as they traverse a rugged bandit field terrain, the two of them begin to develop kind of a silent, sweet, friendship. One day, Captain Kidd's enemies surround the wagon, and Captain Kidd and Johanna are hiding underneath the wagon, dodging the gunfire, and he thinks, well, I should just surrender. They have me surrounded on all sides. I'm running out of ammunition, but then he thinks of Johanna, and so he keeps trying to think of a strategy out, and she comes over, and she tugs on the edge of his shirt and she points to a shotgun and he shakes his head and tells her there's no more ammo. And yet she insists and she has presented him with fresh ammo because she has taken the empty holes and filled them with dimes and he begins to fight for their lives. And when he sees what she has done with the dimes and the ammo, he breaks out into laughter. He realizes everything has changed now. And he says, good girl, Johanna, good girl, my dear little warrior. And when he returns her to her aunt and uncle, it breaks his heart to leave her there. He fears that they don't love her. They simply want some cheap labor. He goes back the next day to check on her. She's out in the fields working, and he can see upon her arms the dark red stripes where her aunt and uncle have whipped her with the dog's whip. Get in the wagon, he shouts, and she replies to him, Conta, meaning grandfather, and she begins to cry. And he steals her back, raises her as his own flesh, and walks her down the aisle on her wedding day. The story of Noah's Ark portrays a God who has fallen in love with humanity. Sometimes we imagine that our God simply set the earth spinning on its axis and walked away and left us here to figure it all out alone. But around the campfire, the ancient people of God told a story of a God with emotion, like grief and sorrow and longing and love. They told a story about a God whose very identity was bound up with humanity. 
what happens to people matters ultimately to God. This idea that God's heart aches is not unique to this story. We hear from the prophet Isaiah who speaks for God saying, for a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I gather you. And the Song of Solomon expresses God's patience in loving us no matter what floods threaten us when it says many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. God's heart remains patient, patiently waiting for us to return to God and live as, though who as those who mirror the compassion, the emotion, the tender love of God. Well, at the end of the story, Noah steps off the boat, and he begins behaving in embarrassing ways. A family squabble breaks out. They are as dysfunctional as ever. This part you will rarely find in a children's book. For all of a sudden, this good man that God saved is just as much of a mess as those who had drowned. Humanity hasn't changed. Only God has changed. God has linked God's future to the future of humanity. And God decides to never again destroy. Yes, God will judge, but grace, not judgment, will get the final word. God then chooses the symbol of a bow. Think of a bow and arrow, a drawn bow as a symbol of violence and vengeance. But instead, the bow is not pulled taut but is soft, and God lays the bow on its side and places it there in the sky so that the sun's rays in the midst of the clouds will create a rainbow, a reminder, the scripture tells us, to God that God's own heart has changed. But I can't help but wonder if we are the ones that need to be reminded that there is nothing we can ever do to prevent God from loving us. Since the time of the flood, humanity has seen so many other disasters. We've seen the Holocaust, world wars, tsunamis, slavery. We have seen nations rise and fall, and we have experienced our own personal floods. The flood called divorce that upends everything we had counted on in life. The flood of bankruptcy that leaves us in despair. The flood of depression after a child commit suicide. In these moments, God becomes vulnerable with us, enters into the pain of life with us, and promises that such anguish will not get the last word. God's love and grace will be the final word. Or as one scholar puts it, God cannot be God if our sin has the final say on the future of creation. You know, when cathedrals were built, they called this center section where you are seated the nave, from the Latin word novice or ship. And they built in the ceiling rafters to resemble the keel of a boat so that when they sat in the nave, they could look up at the rafters and remember that this is a ship turned upside down because never again will God need a ship to ferry God's people safely home. God has promised to love the people forever. 
And so it is God's love that is the ark carrying us safely home. Though the waters of trouble will surely rise around us, we will not sink. God's love and hope will carry us beyond our own ability. I knew a little boy once who played baseball. Baseball was his passion, his obsession. After machine pitch and coach pitch, he was excited to finally become one of his little league team starting pitchers. He pitched a few no-hitters. Eventually, he moved on from baseball. He gave up baseball for soccer and girls and cars and guitars. But years later, when he was almost an adult, he told his dad that he always knew playing baseball, that when the game was on the line, the coach never called him in to pitch. He could see that the coach didn't trust him. And so the trust that he had in himself began to erode. In the story of Noah's Ark, we see that God puts us in at the crucial moment. <laughs> 